What are you afraid of? What are, what, what are those things that scare you? Now, I'm not trying to, like, re-traumatize anybody. Like, there are, we do have, there's danger out there. There's horrible things in our lives. And I imagine, as you think about the question, what scares you? I'm just going to, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not any of those things. But I'm going to be willing to bet you thought of negative things. When I ask what scares you, maybe you thought about, like, someone in the first service. He was five. He said, wolves. That is a legit fear. Yeah, like the wolves are scary. I'm afraid of birds. That's not a very legit fear. You have a very legit fear. But when we talk about what scares us, a lot of times we think about things that are negative. Wolves. Snakes. Things that decisions we have to make. Relationships that are painful. But how many of us actually think about positive things when we think about things that scare us? I have met people who are afraid of joy. What does it look like to be afraid of joy? Cynicism. This won't work. You know, you talk, you've been talking for this whole series about how to build a high joy community. I've been to church, all right? I know this won't work. I know it may happen in spurts, but we're not going to really create a sustainable, high-joy, high-hessed community. I wonder if you're willing to look at that from a different angle. Perhaps that's fear. Over the course of the past several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Philippians where Paul has been talking about this community he's building, his vision for the people of God, the family of God. When this new creation community breaks into the old creation, what happens well, it, it creates high joy. And for many of us, this new word, high hesed, that strong bonds, that attachment, that, hey, I've tied my well-being to you. Not in a codependent way, in an interdependent way. Like, I, when you do well, I do well. We, I love you. High joy, high hesed communities. That's Paul's vision. How do we create that? Well, we create that through identity and belonging. And now as we wrap up this series, Paul's preparing us for the journey ahead, saying this can be sustained. As the neuroscientist from UCLA, Dan Siegel, says about the human mind, what can be experienced can be sustained. So if we can experience a high joy, high hesed community, in bubbles, if we can do that, we can sustain it. And, and Paul is trying to give us a map for how we do that. How do we really move forward building this high joy, high love, deep attachment community? And there's three ways that he says we can do that. I'm going to give you those three ways, then we're going to read it from God's Word, then we're going to unpack it. The three ways that he gives us, one of them can be very scary, especially if you have like an engineer mindset. We like rules. Just tell me what to do, tell me step one, tell me step two, tell me step three. We don't get rules, we get principles. Paul says if we really want to, if we really want to 
have this high joy family of God community sustainable, it has to be based on principles, not on rules. Oh. Secondly, if we're going to really have this high joy, high love community be sustainable, it needs to be invitation, not obligation. If it's going to be, if it's going to last, it can't be obligation. Like what I just tried to do with you guys with a Christmas tree. It doesn't work, right? It's an invitation, but if we obligate you, it really quickly dries up. And then the last thing, there's a saying in AA that I quoted a few weeks ago, and several people who've gone through the program were texting me, like, oh, actually, it's this. And so the saying goes something like, we're not in the get results business. We are in the show up and work business. So Paul's saying, if you really want this to be sustainable, you have to live in this tension, in this space, that we're not promised results. And this really works. So we're not promised results. We may do all these things and we may be doing it from a posture that is just, just so in line with God's heart. And nothing may happen. And this does really work. And so that's the invitation. It is embracing all three of those things. Principles, not rules. Invitation, not obligation. And we're not promised results. And this works. So, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 8, all the way to the end of the book. Philippians 4, 8 through 23. Uh, leading up to Christmas, to Luke's utter joy and fascination, it's Christmas again. Is, is your house decorated yet? Not yet. Okay. They were like threatening to come decorate my house last year because their love for Christmas just spills out in, into my lack of love for Christmas. So I just say like we're almost at Christmas. And so leading up to Christmas, I've been doing a lot of like writing and researching uh, for, about the virgin birth. And so I've been reading a lot of like secular resources on it. And I just have to say, uh, we really love the Bible at this church. And it just makes me so sad when people use it and study it as an ancient document and don't. And so with that heavy weight that's on my heart, in mind, would you please stand out of respect for God's word? He is a God who speaks. This is a living document. And he speaks to us through his word. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. And I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
Whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Oh, they're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. God. God, we, we just, what we just read, that as we put these things into practice, the God of peace will be with us. God, you could have said anything about you in that moment. You could have said the God who knows, the God who sees, but you're the God of peace. That sustained sense of well-being, that you're setting things right in the world, that's the God who's with us. So God, I pray that as we, as we really do chase after this, as we set out to be a church that's a high joy, high hesed community, I pray, Father, that we would do so with a great awareness that the God of peace is with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. When we started this series, talk about things that we're afraid of. When we started this series, we started it with a survey. So we, we had a 10-question survey, and the invitation with the survey was to be honest. It was just an invitation to say, hey, how are we doing as a church? Right? And, and, and the, the questions from the survey were about, are we actually cultivating soil where this high-joy community can thrive? Because remember, we're, we're not responsible. We can't create results, but we can cultivate the soil where these things grow, where joy can grow where deep bonds can grow, where love can grow, where people are known, cared for. We can, we can create this space. We can cultivate the soil. So we took a survey. It was a 10-question survey, and it was the range from zero to three, zero being like, no, not true at all, and three being like, totally true. And I said, at the end of this series, we're going to revisit that survey. We're going to see, has anything changed? So we're going to look through that survey again, and... Again, looking backwards can be like, why are we looking backwards? Why are we asking these questions? But looking backwards can also have the effect of creating momentum. So like, if you're chasing after your goals and you're always looking forward, being like, man, I'm not a doctor who lives in midtown Manhattan performing one surgery a year that pays for my house in Cabo. I'm not that. 
ugh, and you just keep chasing after that, you're going to be really upset. But if you're like, man, I'm the first person in my family that went to college. That's really cool. Whoa. And it, looking back can create momentum, seeing where we've come from. So we're going to re-go over this survey, these 10 questions. If you have a pen and paper, you know, you can fill that out. If you have a phone, you can, if you have a phone. Ha! All right. Because again, what we're trying to say here is like with everything we have, we're going to chase after this. Right? Like we're saying yes to this. We're saying yes to cultivating healthy soil. We're saying yes to building a high joy community. We're saying yes to Paul's vision for church. With everything we have, we're going to chase after that. That may mean saying no to other things because we're too busy chasing after this. This is what we're chasing after. How do we know we're, we're doing it well? Well, if we're cultivating healthy soil. This survey can be a way like, oh, there's an area for growth. So we're going to ask these 10 questions. And then we're going to see how can we truly sustain this. Question number one. Again, these go from zero to three. And we're going to assess our scores at the end. Question number one. If this is true for you, give yourself a three. If it's not true for you, give yourself a zero. And anywhere in between. We speak about how this place has changed our lives for the better. We speak about how this place has changed our lives for the better. Question number two. It's easy to find things to appreciate each Sunday in this place. It is easy, as in not difficult. It is easy to find things to appreciate each Sunday in this place. Three, I expect people will say kind things about my weakness here. I expect people will say kind things about my weakness here. We regularly become more joyful when we come to this place. Question four. We regularly become more joyful when we come to this place. Zero, that's never true. Three, that's often true. When things are going wrong, I still feel peaceful here. When things are going wrong, I still feel peaceful here. When I see people who are hurting... I want to bring them to this place. When I see people who are hurting, I want to bring them to this place. I can interact with people who have more life experience than I have. If you can interact with people who have more life experience than you have, often give yourself a three. If that's never true, give yourself a zero. What I'm expected to do has value in this place. What I'm expected to do has value in this place. Number nine, what we do here has a positive effect on the people around us. What we do here has a positive effect on the people around us. And number ten, I feel understood in this place. I feel understood in this place. Now again, like I said the first time we did this, uh, a poker face is a very clutch tool right now, okay? Don't be like... Whoa. All right, just poker face. All right, here's the inventory. If you scored yourself between 0 to 12, we are a failing church. We are not cultivating soil to be a high joy, high hesed. We... Whew. 
13 to 22 were almost sustainable. It's like that, that car, you know, the engine's like kind of turning over. Like, well, we're, well, we may yet go somewhere. 13 to 22. 23 through 30 means we are healthy soil. Like, man, we really can be a place where people experience a new identity, belonging in the family of God. And they experience that identity and belonging and they experience transformation. We are cultivating the soil for that. That's 23 through 30. That's why this series is called Identity and Belonging because we, we, I very firmly believe that transformation happens not when we take an ancient document into a study, try to understand it as much as we can, and then try to apply it to our lives. Like, that's great. And I do that a lot with my week. A lot with my week. But we really believe transformation happens when we understand our identity, who we are in Christ, that we're united with Jesus. Like Ephesians says, we've been raised and seated on high with the Father. We're in Christ. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. We have that identity, and then as the people of God come together and we create belonging, that creates transformation. We become new people who do new things. Yep, we orient our lives around Scripture. That becomes a really big thing, but we don't privatize it and go off and say, if I just know the right things... What we deeply believe around here, it's not about what you know. It's about who you love. We believe transformation happens when we love Jesus. And when we're loved by Jesus. And as a community, when we do that together, when we build these high joy, high hesed communities. So are we healthy soil? Because that's our why. We're going to cultivate healthy soil. Uh, If anybody has seen the World War II film Dunkirk... It's a, it's a kind of confusing movie. It's like, way well, the, you know, the timeline is all screwed up. But I just remember a scene where, like, Harry Styles and his crew, they're, like, running, and they're on the beach, and they find a boat. And I had, like, high anxiety during that movie. And I'm finally like, yeah, they're going to get away. This is great. And they start getting out into the water, and then all these holes start coming into the boat. And if you remember, like, they start putting their hands on a hole and, like, their foot on another hole. And they're like, okay. We're going to get across like the English Channel or whatever. I have, I have no idea. It's like, um, I don't know how sustainable this is. See, church is a lot like that. We have this community of people who come together chasing after what I just described, and then there's ruptures. There's holes in the boat. And there's lots of ways to deal with those holes in the boat, Right? Somebody said something rude and offensive. Somebody gossiped about us. We didn't get our way. This one leadership thing. We don't really like this direction over here. Ruptures. And some churches, what they do is they just put a hand over that hole. And like, we're cool. We're cool. That's not sustainable. The early part of our passage that we're dealing with, Paul is dealing with a rupture. There was a relational rupture between these two women who were co-workers for the gospel with Paul. And there was a relational rupture, a hole in the boat. And so Paul is working on dealing with that rupture and then setting the church off toward the future, toward sustainability. What can be experienced? High joy is being threatened. How do we rupture that and then move off into a way that's sustainable? And Nick talked about that last week, about how we deal with conflict together. Paul now still, though, has, his, has conflict in mind, but he's, heading, he's trying to send the church off well. He's saying, okay, you're going to have threats. What we say around here a lot as a staff is people are not problems. And people have problems. 
Do you hear the difference there? People are not problems. But people do have problems. So we're not saying, oh, people aren't problems. There's no problems here. Everything's fine. We all get along. That water you feel on your ankles, that's the design of this boat. No, no, we're saying there's not, there should not be water in this boat. There should be water outside the boat. All right? But people aren't the problem. People have problems. People are not problems. And that's what Paul had described last week. So now he maps a way forward of how do we repair ruptures so we can be a sustainable community. And he gives us something that is both frustrating and can be scary. He gives us principles, not rules. I would love it if Paul said, hey, you folks who aren't getting along, here's what you need to do. Step one, hire a consultant. All right, get outside voices to come in. They'll really know what to do. Step two, everybody in the church should do something together. Maybe everybody in the church should wake up at seven and have a quiet time. Step three, we should have a potluck. All right? And so every time a church encounters conflict, we go through these three steps. Consultant, early morning quiet times, and potlucks. That is how we navigate conflict. That's not what he says. Look at what he says in verses 8. He's just, he's still right getting out of talking about conflict. And here's what he says. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, whatever is pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think on such things. What? Try to think about something that doesn't fit that category. That is extremely broad. He is not giving us rules for how to navigate conflict. All right, you just do this, do that, then do this. Boom. He's giving us principles. Hey, when we encounter conflict, we face it, we deal with it, and we spend our energy thinking about beauty. What? Can we just get some rules here, Paul? You know, this may come as a shock to many of you, but the Bible doesn't have many rules. Now, if you've been around for a long time, you're like, wait a minute. Isn't there like this Old Testament with like 613 rules? This thing called the law? Totally. But let me just even point out, and Paul points this out, like what happens with rules? Rules aren't bad, but here's what happens. How many of you have a parapet at your house? How many of you eat hooved animals? How many of you eat shellfish? Even here in the Midwest, there must be at least two in this room. <laughs> All right? Those rules were for a specific time, a specific context. And now that that time and context has gone, how does that help us? We need principles. Look, there are rules in the Bible. Don't kill. It's a great rule. You can apply that anytime. You don't have to wait to apply that. That's a fantastic rule to live by. All right? But the principles are much harder to live by. Look at what Paul says. He even goes deeper. Verse 9. Listen to this. Whatever you've learned or received or heard or seen in me, put into practice. It's like, ah, <laughs> could you be a little more specific? But he's laying out principles for how we can sustain these high joy, high hesed communities. It's not by rules. Because rules can really quickly shift our focus away from what it is we're trying to do. Rules really quickly become about, oh, we just need to keep these rules because these rules were given as safeguards. And then instead of creating the thing, this high joy, high hesed, we're just concerned about following the rules, which 
oftentimes can become obsolete. Rather, what Paul is saying is this, here's the type of people we are. Here's our identity, and here's what it's like for us to do. When we encounter conflict, we deal with it. Verses 1 through 7. But we're not just conflict people. We're people who create beauty in the world. Look at this list. This is a crazy list. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely. What does lovely mean? Lovely, beautiful, right? Whatever is lovely, what is admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Let your mind go to these things. Dwell on these things. We're people who dwell on beauty. Why do we dwell on beauty? Because the God of this beautiful world has created a new creation within that creation, and that creation is breaking in, and that's what we're about. So we deal with conflict as it relates to, hey, this conflict is a disruption to our high joy community. So we're not going to pretend it didn't happen. We're going to move toward the conflict. But the real thing we're about here is joy. The real thing we're about here is enjoying our relationship with God. Like that list, we, we would expect, I would expect that list to Paul to say, okay, you had a conflict, here, here's how we're going to get through it. Whatever is true and right, think about those things. Like, okay. But he doesn't. He widens. That list is humongous. Think about something that doesn't fit on that list. You can find beauty anywhere, even at a Chiefs game. <laughs> the invitation here is to be new people who see the world differently. And that's really frustrating. I want a rule, but I get a principle. I want Paul to say, hey, you know what? This, okay, yeah, this is for everybody else, but just do these three things. And I'm not even really, like, I'm, you know, Luke and I talk about a lot. There's two types of people. There's, like, people on trains, like, train tracks. Like, I just need to know where we're going. Okay, here, I can see the track. We're going to go around this bend. And there's, like, hot air balloon people. Like, I, we can go anywhere. I'm for sure the hot air balloon person. But, like, not having specificity can be frustrating. Because Paul's trying to invite us into wisdom. We need to take the principles he's laid out, the things we saw him as he did, as he imitated Christ, take the principles for that and apply that to our moment. And when rules aren't bad, like I just finished writing up some, a, a rule of life for my life. Things that I'm going to commit to doing uh, to cultivate more abiding with Jesus. So things I'm going to do daily, things I'm going to do weekly, and things I'm going to do monthly to really cultivate and abide in Jesus. You know, what are they? Can I get those? No. Because you're not me. And what works for me might not work for you. Paul is saying, don't just plug and play your spiritual life. You can't just copy and paste. You need to sit with the Lord and apply the principles that Paul has laid out into your specific moment. If this is really going to be sustainable, we have to live by principles, not by rules. Because here's what can easily happen. Again, rules aren't bad. I have a rule of life. That, the same word, rules, rule, right? But what can happen is I can say, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to develop a daily habit of just sitting in silence before the Lord. So every day for 10 minutes, I'm going to sit in silence before the Lord. The goal then, if that's a rule, just becomes about sitting in silence. I did it. I did my 10 minutes. But the, that's not, the principle says you need to find a way that's deeply meaningful for you to sit with and hear the voice of Jesus. You need to find a way in your season. Maybe you're a single mom. Maybe you're a retired CEO. Or maybe you're a parent with young kids. Maybe you're single. 
That, that is a, those are wildly different schedules, wildly different demands. The rule is not, hey, just plug and play. The rule is, what's God inviting me into in my season? And when we're a community who lives by principles, we start inviting people into the experience, not inviting people into the rule. I want you to develop your own rule of life so you can experience what I'm experiencing. I don't want you to take a... Well, I almost said what I do. I don't want you to do what I do so that you do what I do. I want you to have the same experience. And principles get us there. Rules don't. Because that's the posture Paul's trying to model for us. Is this posture of invitation, not obligation. That's the second thing that's going to really help this be sustainable. Is if we really are going to be a high said high joy community. A place where, man... Like, look at some of these questions, right? When I see people who are hurting, I want to bring them to this place. Rules aren't going to get us there, right? I feel understood in this place. Rules can't get us there. Invitation is what Paul's trying to model. And this is so important because as this letter ends, we can miss so much of what Paul's saying because it sounds odd. He's like, okay, Philippian church, you gave to me in the past. I don't need you to give anymore, but you gave. Thanks. And we're like, what is this? Like, what's happening? Why are we getting like a support letter from Paul? Like, what's going on? It's really important to note, we, we call this the book of Philippians, but it's not really a book. It's a letter. All right? It's not like Yuval Harari, where he spends like a year in silence and solitude, writes a book, then goes on a book tour. And it, no, these are written on the go. Divinely inspired letters. So like we like to say around here, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. Paul wants us to overhear, I'm telling my supporters how they can support me. Like, why? Because he's trying to invite us into a way of being that's radically different. Look, look with me again at some of these verses that he's talking about. Verse 10, he says this, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you, you were concerned, but you didn't have opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I have. Skip down to verse 17. Not that I desired your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Here's what Paul's saying. Imagine with me, you're at your favorite museum. So maybe it's MoMA, LACMA. What's the one in Chicago? The Art Institute? All right, you're at your favorite museum, and there's a buzz around the museum. This new artist's work is going to be put on display. And you just sit back in the room where that new artist's work is, and you watch everybody come in. All these urban hipsters, all these professors from the university, and they're all like, you know, oh, I think this painting means this. Well, I think it means this. And they're all analyzing it, and you just have a big smile on your face, and you're watching, and you're like, that painting is there because 10 years ago, I let a broke artist live in my garage. And this artist had no money. And I, bought, I gave him free rent, and I bought all their meals. And it's fun to imagine, if I hadn't have done that, would any of y'all come out for this right now? That is what Paul is inviting the Philippian church into. Look at verse 17. He says, listen, he says, I don't desire your gifts. I don't need your money. 
What I desire is that more be credited to your account. Well, what, what does it look like to have more credited to your account? Look again at the end of verse 18 when he describes the gifts they gave. They, the gifts, are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. I want you to give to me so that you can feel God's pleasure. So that you can be the person in the museum being like, who knows? If we didn't give that broke artist a place to sit, this may not have been here. That's pretty cool. Look, that's what we try to say. Almost every week when we stand up here and we say, we don't need your money. We do not need your money. And your money really does stuff. I can see by the sweaters in the room that you're like, yes, I wish we had money because the AC went out. Or heat. Yes, heat went out. See, I don't, you don't want me in charge of your building. The, the things we do, it's an invitation, Paul says, to experience God's pleasure. It's not a fear-based thing. You have to give. If you don't give, I'm going to go hungry. Look at what he says. Here's what he says. I'm not, verse 11, I'm not saying this because I'm in need. Look, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to have plenty. I have learned the secret to be content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then that famous football verse, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Verses wildly ripped out of context. Paul is not saying that. Like, you can do anything you want, folks. What he's saying is this. Look, I don't need your money. If you don't give and I don't have, I know how to survive. I can do it all. I can go without. It's not an obligation. I'm not writing saying, if you don't give, you know, church in America is in decline. And if you don't show up on Sunday, that numbers will go down. And there's going to be a whole emerging generation where they don't even know what it's like to be in church. So you need to show up in church on Sunday or church will disappear. And if church disappears, think about what happens to society. And so your fault, society goes into the toilet. So be here on Sunday. It's not what he's saying. And I just want to say, if you hear pastors saying that, change the channel. It's not Christian. It's fear. Paul's like, I don't need you. I don't need you. But we get to do this together. The beautiful thing is you can feel the pleasure of God. Paul's saying that can be you in that museum. Say, man, I did that. And God's like, yeah. It's pretty beautiful. That's the invitation you can create a high hesed, high joy community through your participation. And that's sustainable. Look, I will not say where, but I was at a church yesterday and it was crazy depressing. Like I almost had to like walk out. I was just like, oh my gosh. And, and it's because I had a conversation with a church a denominational leader on the West Coast earlier this week. And you just hear these things about like, man, church is in trouble. And then the church I was in yesterday, I was like, yeah, churches are in trouble. Because like, who wants to go? Who, why? Why sit in a room where it's just like, you ought to be doing this. You ought to be doing that. So and it's like, you know, I, do, I, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't blame people who leave stuff like that. That's not what Paul's doing here. Paul's saying your participation helps you move into a greater awareness of the pleasure of God. God really likes you. 
And when we give, we integrate that reality into our lives. When we serve, we integrate that reality into our lives. Listen to the language that he talks about here. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice. Because giving is a sacrifice. Look at what he says in verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. We rightly criticize the prosperity gospel. It's icky. It's gross. I hate it. It's the worst export America has ever sent out. Yes. It's terrible. We go to these third world countries and we say, hey, do you want a beamer? Give to God. I have a beamer. I have God's blessing. So if you give, you'll get a beamer. That's sick. We're right to hate that. That's injustice. It's terrible. And in our hatred for that, we may have swung the pendulum a little too far to where we're like, hey, give, but you know, don't, don't, we don't expect anything when we give. Look at what Paul says. My God will meet your needs according to the riches. So you have given sacrificially and you can trust that God's going to meet your needs. Now it does not say when you give to church, there's going to be a Tesla in your driveway. It does not say if you give sacrificially and overdraw your account, you don't have to pay those fees. That's not what it says. That's also not what I'm asking anyone to do. I'm not asking anyone to overdraw their account. Just to be very, very clear. All right? If you're like, I can't give, I believe you. All right? What Paul is saying, though, is when we give and we put ourselves in a position where it's been a sacrifice, you can expect, you can count on his provision. I've said this story before. We had no money, Amy and I, in seminary. No money. We lived in a terrifying neighborhood in Louisville. Like, um, I heard gunshots one night, and they, there were shots. They weren't shooting... The person shooting the gun was not shooting directly at my apartment, but the one beside it. And I knew they were gunshots when I woke up, but I was like, oh, gunshots sound weird. And I fell back asleep. So you also don't want me around in an emergency. <laughs> and I remember like, we were like, we had no money and I was really sick. And he was like, we got to tithe. I was like, oh, but babe, I think God's going to give us a pass. And she's like, no, we're going to give. And I watched God provide. I went to a seminary where my... Uh, my tuition was largely covered by, and I don't mean this pejoratively, but little old ladies making sacrifices. Some of those generous people in my life have not been like the wealthiest, flashiest people that you'd expect. They're ordinary Christians who are just being faithful. And the promise in verse 19, is that God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory. That's extravagant. We may have nothing. Our giving may cost us. And we may not have much. But we get to experience the riches of his glory where we realize, oh man, your presence is beautiful. Your presence is worth more. And that's the invitation. That's how this gets sustained. Because look, here's the thing. You can't build anything meaningful without sacrifice. We can't. 
And the invitation is like, man, if we sacrifice, what happens? And Paul's saying, we'll watch God provide. We'll watch him take care of us. And what you'll see is like, man, all those architectural digest houses where it's like, wow, how does anybody afford an end table that expensive? You see the emptiness. You're like, man, I got something way better than architectural digest knocking on my door asking to see my house. I'm cared for. I'm loved. That's sustainable. And again, it's scary because we're not promised. We're not promised anything in this. We're not promised, oh, if I, if I give $20, I'll get $20 back. Oh, if I show up and sacrifice my time, a, a, a whole magical window of time will open up and I'll have time to actually write that research paper. Oh, if I show up and get hurt, I'm going to get blessed over here and that hurt will get mitigated by the blessing over here. We're not promised that. And Philippians 4.22 is a wildly encouraging verse. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. What? Why is that encouraging? Paul lived in an era before the religious right, before Christian nationalism, before this whole like God and country, uh, confusing. He lived in a, in a place where it was not advantageous at all to be a Christian. It was this wild, misfit group of people, this minority sect of Judaism that was making some noise in Palestine. And cultural elites in Caesar's house found it so compelling they gave their life to Jesus. What Paul is saying is we're not promised results, but I'm tipping my hat to you saying I'm not just being overly optimistic. We're seeing fruit from this. We're seeing God. These people have no reason to trust Jesus with their life. This is a sacrifice, and they're doing it. This really does work. We're not promised results, and this really works. There's a group of us that meet to talk about the sermon before I give it. Super helpful. Uh, they've helped me avoid wild mistakes I would have said. Uh, and one of those mistakes was, I was like, oh yeah, like the whole Caesar's household thing. This is like, I used to work with this girl who was a Jehovah's Witness and we played a game being like, oh yeah? She's like, well, we got Prince. He's a Jehovah's Witness. I'm like, oh yeah? We got Bono. And it was like this back and forth of like, who's a Christian? Who's a Jehovah's Witness? I'm like, that's kind of what Paul's doing. And the people in that group were like, uh, I wouldn't do that. Like, that's not what Paul's doing. Like, oh yeah, that's not what he's doing. Paul's not trying to flex here to say, look, we got people in Caesar's household, so you should give. It's not at all the posture he's setting up here. What he's trying to do is encourage people who are in the throngs, who are experiencing sacrifice, saying, hey, look, this new creation is breaking into the old one. But it's taking time, but it's working. I would love to tell you that growth, what theologians call sanctification, the process of being made like Jesus, the process of experiencing his presence in everything, I would love to tell you that in like a week, you'll be crushing it. But it is a slow process. And what Paul is saying here is, but it works. And one day you'll wake up a totally different person. It is Christmas, much to Luke's joy and my like, oh my goodness. We already saw Home Alone. We already saw Elf. We know how it ends. Why are we watching it again? This is just nostalgia on steroids. But a thing I am looking forward to this Christmas and why I do love Christmas 
Because Christmas is a time of year when our neighbors, our co-workers, are more open to the possibility of thinking about God. And we can totally lean into that. We can invite, hey, this is what we want to invite you into. I don't know your church background. You might have experienced church as like awful. But with everything we have, we're chasing after a high joy, high hesed community. And that's what we want to invite you into. Like we really as a leadership team are saying we're chasing after this with everything we have. Like this is the vision. This is where we want to be. What's your five-year plan? We want to be a higher joy, higher Hesed community. We want, we want people who just were so angry at God to be coming in here and being leaders and joyful. We want to see cigarette butts piling the door out there because people don't know you shouldn't smoke at church. We want to just see people who are far from God being welcomed in and just experiencing the joy of the Lord. We really are a community where we're saying the joy of the Lord is our strength. We want to see older people and younger people like co-mingling of just like, hey man, I have life experience you don't have and I want to be a joy to you and you're a joy to me. That's the vision. We're chasing after that with everything we have. And that's what we want to invite your friends into. I don't want to invite your friends into churches that I've experienced. They're just like, you should be here because if you're not here, churches die, so please stay. That's not the invitation. The invitation is... What if, what if whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy was this community? What if we were a place that was cultivating and creating beauty? And so when your friends get invited into it, you know they're getting invited into something where they too can belong and get a new identity. So this, this Christmas, we're just asking, who is the one person God's putting on your heart? Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a classmate, but who's the one person God's putting on your heart to invite to church this Christmas? You know, we as a staff and as an elder board, uh, we read the book, You Found Me. And in You Found Me, they give a statistic that if you're invited to church by a friend or a family member, there's a 53% likelihood that they'll say yes. So to quote Katniss Everdeen, the odds are ever in your favor. But also, I know that that's scary because that's a 47% chance you're going to look like a weirdo. That's a 47% chance you might be facing rejection. That's a 47% chance it doesn't work out. But what we can experience is verse 9, that the God of peace will be with us in those moments. Paul took a tremendous risk to build, to turn away from all the stuff he had in Judaism and to embrace Christ and to take that, to go wherever that took him. He followed that with everything he had. He chased after it. And the invitation, not obligation, the invitation for us is to say, what's the risk we can take? Who's the person God's putting on our heart? Father, Father, I think about all the, the opportunities Christmas presents. God, I pray that as we encounter people who are more open to the possibility of life with you, who are more open to saying yes to you, and I pray you'd give us the courage just to ask, just to invite. Hey, would you, would you come?
Because God, I pray that as a, as a church community, we would have just a deep confidence that we're inviting people into a high joy, high hesed community. God, I pray for those who have not experienced Compass as a high joy, high hesed community. God, I pray for those of us who need to do repairing, that you'd give us the strength and the courage to run toward people to repair. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.